0: I invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Acts chapter 2, the passage that was read for us just a few moments ago will be our text for this morning. Uh, Following Pentecost last week, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we're going to hear the rest of Peter's sermon from that day. Uh, Today is the Sunday we celebrate as Trinity Sunday and in some ways that's what we profess uh, every Sunday as we gather. We 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 profess that we believe in a triune God. And that's what Peter is actually preaching here in this portion of the book of Acts. He's preaching this that God is one. There is none beside him. God is three persons, equal in substance and glory. God is three in one. We serve and worship a triune God. Now, this doctrine of the Trinity can be a stumbling block for many who are curious for religious things. And we can empathize with that, too. Because, I mean, who can understand three persons, one God? But as this Sunday is the foundation for uh, who we are and our life in the church, we need to focus on that while we hear from the Apostle Peter. Today we hear from Peter's sermon, and it exposes the doctrine of the Trinity The father who sent and sacrificed his son. His son went willingly and gave himself up. Who he was raised and exalted in order to send the spirit which proceeds from the father and from the son. And these are the three persons of our triune God. One God. Will you join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have given us yourself in your son Jesus Christ. And that you grant us your spirit poured out. On Pentecost and throughout the church as we are baptized in the triune name, we belong to you. We were bought with a price. Open our ears and our eyes now to hear from you in your word that we might be conformed to the image of your dear son from one degree of glory to the next. It's in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen. So we're going to hear a sermon on a sermon, okay? And the aim of the first sermon in the book of Acts is to simply draw the nations that are represented... In Jerusalem at that time, to draw them all to Christ. Because that's the only way to communion with our triune God. Peter declares to the hearers of that day the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the heart is this, that our highest good is God, our highest happiness is in God's presence. Our highest good is God and our highest happiness, therefore, is in his presence. On verse 28, what he's, what he's doing there is he's, he's quoting the end of Psalm 16. And he says this, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's what David sings in that psalm. And that's what Peter is singing here about Jesus Christ. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter declares the path of life. The place of infinite goodness is Jesus Christ. Are we walking that path with Peter and those he preaches to? Well, let's begin by oh, looking at the context again, just by way of reminder, the Spirit has been poured out on Pentecost as the, the apostles are, and disciples are in the upper room. Peter then addresses this international crowd, pilgrims from all over the globe. And he explains a phenomenon they're all experiencing as they hear their own languages from the lips of unlearned Jews. And Peter locates this people, this event, in the prophet Joel, in the promise that God gives through him of the Spirit being come. Given uh, centuries earlier, that same prophecy is happening on that day. The Spirit is given, the Spirit is poured out. It's the mystery of the Trinity revealed. The Father had promised years and centuries ago, and the Son has come, and now the Spirit makes known, reveals the mystery of the triune God. Look at verses 22 and following as Peter addresses. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here we have the Father and Son in relationship with one another. There is submission and exaltation of God's Son. Father and Son, The word of Jesus' death and resurrection, whether the people at Pentecost would have believed it or not, that word had spread throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding region like a viral video saturates our internet. Peter bears witness to this Jesus, and he's reminding hearers of the mighty works and the wonders and the signs that Jesus had done while he walked this earth. Through these wonders, signs, and works, Jesus is being validated as God's own son As the Messiah. In his preaching, Peter here reveals the inner working of the triune God. So, God the Father is sending the Son, is what Peter says, according to a plan. That Father had a plan from all eternity. Design, the design of uh, Jesus' sacrificial death to which he submitted. We have here in the first few verses of our text, we have the divine dance of a triune dance. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, take the floor in order to save sinners. Now, the death and resurrection of Jesus was no accident. Peter's very clear. He says, yes, Jewish leaders, you crucified and you killed him. But all who can hear his voice know that all was carried out according to the plan of God the Father. His definite plan and foreknowledge. Which means that the son would have had to be willing. The son must be submissive, a willing sacrifice. And according to the plan, then the father raises this Jesus up from the dead and then exalts him to his right hand because it was not possible for death to hold this, the son of God. In order to prove his point to these hearers there that, that this was God's plan, that Jesus is the Son, and that, the, that his death and resurrection was all part of God, the Father's will, what does Peter do? He goes to the, the king David, and he quotes Psalm 16. Look at verse 25. David says concerning him, so Peter's saying, David wrote about this Jesus who I'm preaching about here. David says concerning him, See, David has sung, even in the Psalms, about a mutual submission and exaltation of the Father and the Son. In the same way that David is now, as a prophet, writing and singing about the Father and Son in a death and a resurrection. That's what Peter's saying. That David, as king and prophet and poet, sings about Jesus in relationship to his own Father. Peter makes the point that David must have been writing about somebody else other than himself because David died, right? Verse 29, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died, was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Everybody knows when you die and you go into your tomb that that corruption happens to the body. Yet Psalm 16 is one of God preserving his anointed king, a king who is pure in spirit, single-hearted in worship, delighting in and giving himself for God's people. Those hearing Peter preach would know and would have sung this psalm over and over again. What Peter preaches would be ringing in their ears. They themselves were waiting for this offspring from King David, this offspring who would would come and, and establish the kingdom once again in its fullness, that the king would take his rightful place over the earth, Make all things new. All the hearers of Peter that day were waiting for this Messiah. Were waiting for this Messiah. But Peter, he believes that David is singing about that offspring. Great as David was, he he surely was singing of one greater than himself, whose death would not bring corruption. David is a shadow, and his offspring is the substance. And that's what Peter is preaching here as he quotes King David. He goes on to witness to the triune salvation in verse 30 and following. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses Witnesses to what? Witnesses to the triune salvation. See, David died and Jesus died. David's body experienced corruption. Jesus is given a new body. Peter declares that this is exactly what David was singing about nearly a thousand years before this event. Now, how could have you known that the, the, how could David have known that Jesus would come that the messiah the christ would indeed come remember that god promised david long ago he promised that david would have an offspring that's what peter says he's reminding us god promised david that he would have an offspring who would sit on the throne forever first chronicles chapter 17 reminds us of that it says to david this is god's promise his covenant when your days are fulfilled to walk with your father's I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall not build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Now, on some level, that's speaking about Solomon, right? But did Solomon reign forever? Did Rehoboam, Hezekiah, Josiah, did any of them reign forever? God had yet to establish a kingdom. A king or an offspring of David on a throne forever. Peter, a few breaths earlier than what we have here, declared what, what Joel prophesied centuries before was happening in their midst now as the Spirit is poured out on God's people. He then says that what David proclaimed about his offspring being preserved forever on a throne, that's happening now as well in Jesus Christ. He is that offspring. In this we marvel at the inner workings of Of our triune God, the Son submits to the Father, and the Father then exalts the Son. Now, what's interesting about when Peter quotes Psalm 16, what's interesting is that the very last line of Psalm 16 isn't quoted here. So here's the very last line of Psalm 16: At your right hand are pleasures evermore. If you know Psalm 16, that's what you were—you were missing it, weren't you? Like, well, what happens? At your right hand are pleasures evermore. See, more of the triune mystery is revealed as we see that Christ has ascended. And where does he ascend to? The Father's right hand. At your right hand are pleasures ever more. Psalm 16 sings of the Lord at David's right hand as protecting, providing the king But the psalm ends, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. At your right hand are pleasures ever more. The aim of life, that is, you will make me full, right? Is dwelling in God's presence. Well, how do we do that? How do we ascend to the right hand of the Father? Well, we have one who is ascended and now sits on the eternal throne to reign over all of creation at God's right hand. The Father has exalted the Son and seated Him upon the throne. Our hearts are made for thee, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. We ascend in Christ to dwell with God, full of gladness, pleasure forevermore. See, Peter declares that Jesus is the way, is the only way, to enter into that presence. For Jesus was exalted by the Father to sit on the eternal throne as David's true and final offspring, to sit at God's right hand. And what David promises there is what? At your right hand, Father, we know at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At your right hand is our infinite joy. Now this pleasure and unbound joy is a person, namely Jesus Christ, seated now and forever at God's right hand. The point of Peter's quoting Psalm 16 is to point out to all of those hearers that there are pleasures at God's right hand in Jesus Christ. See, the Father and the Son are working together for the salvation of man, the renewal of all creation, redemption of the world. But the Father and Son are not working alone. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing Peter is saying, in your midst you have the third person of the triune God poured out and represented as these apostles are lit by the flame of God's spirit and breathe out his truth now. The Father sends, sacrifices, raises, and exalts the Son. The Son submits, honors, and glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds both from Father and Son to be given for the life of the world. Now that spirit was promised by Joel, which Peter Quotes earlier. That same spirit was promised by the prophet Ezekiel centuries earlier. That spirit that would cleanse and renew hearts, that would move as God's breath to enflesh dry bones, to breathe life into dead bodies. Jesus too promised that he would send the spirit. The Father and the Son send the spirit. David wrote of this divine plan centuries before that Christ was exalted, and in his exaltation he sends the Spirit. As the next lines, he gives credit to David as a prophet, once again quoting Psalm 110, verse 34 in our passage. David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In here we have the Trinity, the, the three persons of the triune God exalt one another. In this divine dance, they are deferring for all eternity, one to the other, to give glory to the other. See, Jesus made the point earlier and as he walked and taught on this earth that Psalm 10, written by David... Was well, speaking of somebody other than David himself. I mean, who would the king be referring to when he says, the Lord said to my Lord? Who is the king's Lord that God is speaking to? Peter interprets it the same way, that God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter goes on in verse 36, emphasizing that God the Father established Jesus as both Lord and and as Christ, the Father established Jesus as ruler king and as Messiah, anointed one, promised one. Oh, by the way, this is the one whom you crucified. See, what, what Peter does is he's showing the, the, the hearers who God is. And in seeing God more clearly, then, that reveals who we are in his presence. It's as if Peter says, now that we've established who this Jesus is, who our triune God is, let's establish who we are. And this, it seems to me, is the whole function of that doctrine of the Trinity. That we rest in the mystery of who the scriptures reveal God to be in order that we might see ourselves more clearly as we behold God more gloriously. At some point, as we look at these teachings of Scripture and these doctrines, some faculty other than reason has to take place, has to kick in, right? For who can understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, and three persons? Who can understand? And yet this doctrine is given to us as revealed in Holy Scriptures, as Jesus himself says in his teaching. The doctrine of the Trinity humbles us. The doctrine of the Trinity encourages accountability to Him. It grants us ability to relate to God as a child of the Father, as a brother to the Son, as a friend to the Spirit. Is that how the Trinity functions in our lives? The truth of the Trinity fosters in us a proper sense of awe. Look at verses 37 and following. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, this is a people beholding God who are cut to the heart. That's the design of all prophecy. That's the design of all preaching, that a people would hear and would see God more clearly and be cut to the heart. Obedience to the command of Peter here, repent and be baptized. Obedience to that command must be preceded by a conviction of sin and a sense of awe of who God is and how we've been relating to him. Again, reason will not get us there. You know, guilt and shame, these companions of ours throughout life, they might ignite a life of faith for a while, but that cannot sustain faith through all of life's trials. It is a sense of awe, the unutterable prayers of the Spirit giving us prayers. It's the need that we feel to kneel in homage to our King, the impulse to rise in grateful service, to praise the name of the One who gave Himself that we might be given to our God. Our King is on the throne. His enemies are being made a footstool. That's why the Christian does never despair. A sense of awe which only an eruption of gratitude and praise can consummate. That is the life of the Christian. We are saved to live now in the victory of our God who has established his son at his right hand on his eternal throne. Through the Spirit's work through the life of his body, he is making all his enemies his footstool. And lest we shrink back because we don't always feel a sense of awe at who God is, probably feel that way even this morning. We don't come here sitting in awe of who God is or feeling a a deep sense of sorrow over our sin against Him. Luke, as he writes, tries to paint a picture about what awe of God looks like. So if you jump with me to verse 42, this familiar passage, Here's what awe of God looks like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, belonging, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. All came over every soul in that place, it says. The life of the Christian is is a participation in the Trinitarian life. What Peter preached about the Father, Son, Spirit exalting one another, submitting to one another. That's the Trinitarian life from all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have dancing, been dancing this divine dance of humiliation and of submission and exaltation and glorification. And Peter's point here in Luke's writing of it is this. Our life is an imitation of our triune God's life. The life of the Christian is a participation in the Trinitarian life. The life of the body is an imitation of the life of the Trinity. There is a divine dance in which followers of Jesus are invited to share in, not as wallflowers, but as revelers, as feasters, as friends. And we see in this short passage here that there's a people rooted in sound doctrine and truth, which is why we have a Sunday devoted to this doctrine of the Trinity. Because the Trinity is the foundation of all truth. And all practice flows from that truth. But sound doctrine is not enough. It wasn't reduced to heads on a stick, was it? Just knowing and believing the right things. This knowledge must be exercised by the people in holy rhythms. This is a participation in the divine dance. We see them passing as a people through the waters of judgment as they celebrate baptism as one body. Sharing bread as prayer for strength and drinking wine as rest and joy in the meal that Jesus had given them. Devoting themselves individually and as people to prayers prayed and written throughout the centuries and in spontaneity under the Spirit's influence. Those holy rhythms then work up a holy generosity where they care one for the other in the body of Christ. They use their gifts for the benefit of others and for the good of the world. They fellowship in one another's homes, for meals, for singing, for conversation. They wrestle with cultural issues. They navigate life's difficulties. The body is the place where confession, repentance, and reconciliation is lived out. And may we endeavor here at this church to work towards reconciliation. As we forgive, so will we be forgiven. Fellowship is vital to a life in Christ, in our triune God. It is vital to a life of repentance and forgiveness. And the passage ends, of course, with there's a strengthening of the body here, as many are added to their number. This isn't an inward focus, of course. It is the body strengthened in order to be broken and given for the life of the world. We live now in the victory of Christ over sin, Satan, Satan, And death. And as we depart the walls of this church, we share that victory with the watching world that we might give to others that very life through our suffering, our dying, our share in the life of Christ, in the life of the Trinity. See, we all bear the image of our triune God, don't we? But that image is tainted by sin, that image is marred beyond recognition. Accept that in the salvation won by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus Christ is made manifest in his people. That in Jesus Christ, the restoration of that image comes in ever-increasing measure from glory to glory through all eternity. So as we meditate upon who our God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we meditate on his work in salvation, do not forsake your first love, your most holy profession. See, the Father has chosen and has called before the foundation of the world. The Son has given himself that we might have life. life and he lives now to intercede on our behalf. He who has risen, who is ascended, who now reigns forevermore. And the Spirit has given us to convict, to comfort, to give us Christ, to magnify the Father. This is the God we profess. This is the God we love with our whole being. And this is the God we serve. Praise his holy name. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word. Would you make manifest in us that same awe and devotion given to your followers at the day of Pentecost? Though we cannot understand fully the mystery of the divine Trinity, O Lord, would it bring about us a sense of humility, a sense of awe, that we might be devoted to your truth, uh, to your word, and to your work in this world. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.